Corinthians chapter 12. And we are, or we are, I am going to be sharing on a subject that is called Pure Sex, or a subtitle, Sex in the City. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, and we're going to be reading with verse 1 and 2, and then um, through the message, I will be reading from the book of the Song of Solomon. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, you got it? It reads like this. I have the New Living in, uh, Translation. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Turn around to your neighbor and say, get ready. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, this is not an easy subject to talk about, but I know you're all ears today. If you've never been awake for any message, you will be awake today. I want to be able to share with you what God has to say, because we all hear and see things about sex everywhere. TV shows, movies, videos, internet, billboards, commercials, everything has sex kind of woven into it. And it's talked about everywhere. In high school, it's probably the number one subject. The psychology of sex sells beer. If you saw the Super Bowl, it was selling beer. It sells medicine. And it also even sells potato chips. Socially, sex is a driving force. It's pushing young people to try and experiment with various forms of sex before marriage. It drives singles to have premarital sex. In the political world, sex has always been a factor of what has brought down many men. For years and years and years, and just even the last 20 years, we have, you know, Newt Gingrich, Governor Spitzer, uh, John Edwards, President Clinton, I mean, you name it, they've had problems in this area. Sex is usually talked about in schools, colleges, doctor's offices, homes, on the phone, it's talked about everywhere, but behind the pulpit. We don't hear about it in church. We hear about it everywhere else. We hear about it in music. We hear about it and see it everywhere, but we never hear about sex in church. But the Bible talks about it. And since most people are uncomfortable talking about something that is uncomfortable, they don't talk about it. I'm not uncomfortable with it because it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, I will preach it. How many of you say amen to that? Yeah. <laughs> and because we don't 
talk about it in church. We tend to get our ideas about what is right or what is wrong from the world, from TV, from movies, from books, even from friends. Everybody has an opinion of what is right and what is wrong. And because we don't know or we haven't read or we don't understand God's word about it, we tend to believe that that's what it's all about. If you look on magazine covers on sale right now, right now, these are the articles that you will see. Spark up your sex life. Sexy stomach workout. Live out your sexual fantasies. Secret sex vacations. Secrets to no fail sex. 2010 sex brand new year. Hot new fun. Now, if everybody was having such a great time, why would they have to keep doing articles on it? This last one said hot new fun. And that kind of describes sex a little bit like fire. Under control, fire is great. It can heat up a room, it can cook food, it can even light up a room. But a fire out of control can destroy everything in its path. It is a powerful force. Fire can create, but it can also destroy. And it's the exact same thing with sex. You can enjoy it within the confines of God's boundaries. And what are God's boundaries? Marriage. Because where you have the confines and the boundaries of marriage, you can enjoy it and it can bring you fulfillment. But if you experience it outside of those boundary lines, you will experience destruction and pain and loss in your life. See, many people think that they know God's view. But the view that you think you have that is God's is all negative. There's a lot of talk that goes on about sex, but very little of it is truth. And God's source of truth is what? The Bible. The Bible talks about sex. Why does the Bible talk about sex? Because God created it. He created, man didn't create this. God created it. And because God created it, he wants everyone to know about it so that they can understand it and they can read about it and know what he designed it for. There is a whole book in the Bible that celebrates the intimacy of sex, and that is the book of the Song of Solomon. And the reason that I chose to talk about it is because there's three reasons people divorce. First reason is financial pressures. Second reason for lack of communication. And the third reason is unfulfilled sex life. Those are the three reasons people divorce. Now, I want to share with you three ground rules when it comes to this area of sex. Three ground rules means that what I'm going to talk about today is built on these three foundational truths. These three truths are the foundation, are the bottom line of everything that I'm going to share today. And I will build everything up from these three truths. Number one, God created sex. It was God's idea, not man's. In Genesis 1, and 28, God told Adam and Eve to multiply. He told them, procreate. That's what he told them. And then the Bible says that he blessed them. 
He blessed this act. He blessed the physical intimacy in their life. He blessed them. And blessing it means that he sanctified it. He actually made it good. Sex is not bad. It is not dirty. God created it. That's number one. Number two, sex is for married couples. God created Adam and Eve in a marital state. One man, one woman, one marriage, maximum sexual fulfillment. Those are the boundary lines. Sexual intimacy is enjoyed in the boundaries of marriage. Without marriage, if you engage in physical intimacy, you can bring shame, you can bring embarrassment, you can even bring heartbreak into your life by getting involved in premarital sex. Marital intimacy was meant to be enjoyed. It is wonderful, it is awesome, it is good in the boundaries of marriage. Sexual intimacy is more than a fixed physical act. It's an expression of love. It's a time when two people become one flesh, not only physically, but spiritually. That's the second boundary line. The third boundary line, and this may shock some of you, is that God wants married couples to have great sex. Some of you are inside, inside of you saying, all right. It's okay. Because some of you may think, well, God doesn't really care about that part of my marriage. I mean, that's like, you know, we don't really talk about that part. That part is like, you know, quiet, kept in the dark. Does he care about your hurt? Does he care about your finances? Does he care about if your car runs out of gas? Does he care about your life? Then why wouldn't he care about your sex life? He cares about you, everything that has to do with you. He cares if you're sick. He cares if you're hurting. He cares if you don't have any money. He cares if you have food on your table or not. He cares if you have a job. He cares about all those things. He says he is concerned about every single detail of your life, including your sexual life. So we think God cares about everything else. If God created it, why wouldn't he be concerned about it? Why wouldn't he care about that part of your marriage? See, there's some people who think, it's just sex. What's the big deal? Because that's kind of like what goes on, you know, and where you go to work or where you go to school. It's just sex. I mean, it's just like kissing. It's just like shaking hands. It's no big deal. I want to let you know something today. It is a big deal. And it's not just sex. There are people who have had a painful past with sex. They have suffered abuse. They have been victimized. They have been raped. There has been adultery. There's been molestation. They have sp uh, sexually experimented. They've had pornographic addiction. They've had many sexual partners. They have the pain of regret. Your bodies may heal from that wound and that trauma, 
But the wound still remains in your mind. It's not just sex. So today, I pray that we learn from God's word. We, we learn from the truth of how he feels about sex. I don't want you to be uncomfortable. I know some of you are like, this is going to be tough. Don't look to your right or to your left. So, somehow this brings out a nervousness in people. Why do we get nervous? It's like so weird. Everybody just kind of gets real tight. I wish I, could, wish I could show you your faces. <laughs> that would make you laugh. There is a book in the Bible that talks about sex. And there are many people who have been saved for many, many years, and they've never read this book. Because they started to read it, and they're like, oh, man, this is R-rated. This book talks about the joys of marital sexual intimacy. You know, years and years ago, Hebrew boys were not even allowed to read this book until they were 30. That's how, that's how deep this book is. But today, we're going we're gonna to talk about it. We're going to read it. If you've never read it before and you're married, it's time to crack it open. And uh, if you're single... You can still read it, but you just can't enjoy it until it's time for marriage. So I'm going to be talking to you about the five biblical truths about pure sex from the Song of Solomon. And we're going to be looking at chapter 4 of Song of Solomon. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles. Because in this book of the Song of Solomon, it is a story of a couple that meet... They fall in love, they go through courtship, they get married, they spend their life together, and the Bible says that they lived happily ever after. Now, I know for some of you are saying, that's the way I want to live. Well, you know what? Happily ever after just don't happen. It takes work. Can I hear married couples say amen to that? Amen. It takes a lot of work. And in chapter 4 of what we're going to be reading, I kind of want to tell you the whole story of, you know, they've already met, they've already fallen in love, they went through their courtship, they got married. Now, chapter 4 is their wedding night. This is it. This is the honeymoon. Kind of skip the whole lot just to get to the, to the best part. So if you want to go back and you can read the first three chapters, but we're just cutting to the chase, okay, chapter four. We're going to kind of go through this whole chapter of chapter four. And the first, uh, we're going to read the first four verses here. Follow along with me. Where it says, verse one, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. 
Okay. Some of you are going, what did I just read? <laughs> well, I'm going to share it with you because this was Solomon. How many of you know Solomon had a lot of women in his life? He had all the most women anybody ever had. The man was the player, okay? He was the Mac. The Mac of all Macs, the player of all players. He had something like 969 women. So some of you think you're a Mac. Pfft, you ain't got nothing, okay, on Solomon. Solomon knew how. So number one, out of verses one through four, I want to tell you that great sex starts before the bedroom. Before the bedroom. My husband used to say that men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots. You know the difference between a microwave and a crockpot? A, a microwave is like, that's done. And a crockpot, you got to put it on in the morning just so that you could have dinner at night. There is the difference. Now, I want... I wanna, I'm going to be talking to the men, and then I'm going to be talking to the women. This is for the men. If you want to have, and talking to the married men, all you single men, you can list it in for future reference, okay? But I'm going to be talking to the married men, because men, if you want to have an awesome, physical, intimate time, you better start being romantic and pre preparing your wife in the morning, not five minutes before. In the morning. When, before you leave to work, you cannot leave all upset, all mad, kicking the dog, yelling at the kids, you know, ignoring her, throwing stuff around. Where's my socks? How come my shirts aren't done? And, huh? and yelling at her and then come home all sweet. No, it just doesn't work like that. Look at the words of Solomon. Now, they don't really sound very romantic, do they? This is a couple that is going to be together for the first time. They just got married. And these are the words that he uses to his new bride. He refers to her like a dove, like a goat, like a sheep, a pomegranate, and a tower. Now, this is a hint to men. Please do not ever compare your wife to a goat or a sheep. Okay, because I guarantee nothing good will ever come out of that, ever. All the words that are in these verses boil down to him telling her how beautiful she is. And he uses very descriptive words to tell her, words that she understood that we don't understand. See, wives need to be told how beautiful they are every day, constantly. They don't even need to just be told, oh, you look nice. No, that's not what they need. They need to be told, you look really nice today. That color looks good on you. I like the way that dress looks on you. I like the way your hair looks. I like the way you smell. And when your wife changes her hairstyle, notice. Don't let it, you know, be like somebody else comes and says, hey, you changed your hair and you're looking, oh, yeah, you did, and it's been a month. 
See, because right here, Solomon notices that. He says, your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Now, as I said, do not compare your wife to a flock of goats or, or don't compare her to any other farm animal, okay? <laughs> At all, ever, ever, ever. But in this case, it was something beautiful. He was telling her that your hair looks like a flock of goats. Now, in order to understand that, you would have to imagine a hundred goats coming down the slopes of the Mount of Gilead. And these particular goats were jet black. And they had long hair. And when they all ran, they ran together. And it just looked like a whole stream of black hair flowing in the wind. And what he was telling her was that, I love your long, black, flowing hair. He didn't just say, oh, I like your hair. He described it, and he made it sound so beautiful. Then he says, and this cracks me up. He says, your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth is matched with a twin. <laughs> so you have a molar here, you have a molar here. You have a front tooth here, you have a front tooth there. So if you can't compliment anything, you can compliment that she's got a twin to every tooth, okay? Your teeth are like sheep. None of them are missing. See, you could always find something to compliment. She may have forgotten to pick up your clothes from the cleaners. She may have burnt the beans, but hey, she's got her own teeth, okay? <laughs> what Solomon is telling his wife is that you got a beautiful smile. You have a beautiful smile. Now, some of you may be even wondering, why is he complimenting her teeth or her smile? You got to remember that these particular times were way before Crest, way before Listerine, way before any of that stuff. They didn't have toothpaste back then. So there were a lot of women who had some missing teeth. <laughs> Cavities were running all over the place. So the fact that he got somebody that had all their teeth, man, he scored. He had a great wife with a great set of teeth. So he compliments her smile. He compliments her teeth. Then he tells her, your temples are like pomegranates. Now, understand this. This is what, what I really want you to understand is that this couple is getting ready to consummate their marriage. And he is taking all this time to tell her how beautiful she is. He is taking a lot of time. And he is going detail by detail by detail. He didn't say, you know what, this is our marriage tonight. This is what I've been waiting for. No, he hasn't even touched her yet. And all he's doing is complimenting her. All he's doing is telling her how beautiful she is. He, he compliments her temples, her teeth, her hair, her neck, everything. But he hasn't even talked to her, touched her yet. He's just building her up and building her up. Now, this is where I was trying to get to the guys that your wife needs to be complimented. Your wife needs to be romanced. 
Your wife needs to be a polished crown. See, because your wife is your crown. The Bible says that you wear your crown. Husbands, you're wearing your wife as a crown on your head. Is that crown tarnished? Has it been a long time since you actually told her how beautiful she is? Does she walk around grumpy? It's your fault. Does she run, walk around hurt? That's your fault. She's your crown. She is a reflection of you. And some of you need to polish her crown. I'll tell you that. You definitely need to polish them. Because you need to let her know how much you love her and how much you appreciate her. She needs words of love and romance, not just your actions. There are words from a song that my husband used to sing to me. And it was a, it's an old song, and it's called When You Love a Woman. And just a few, uh, the first four lines say, When you love a woman, tell her that she's really wanted. When you love a woman, tell her that she's the one. She needs somebody to tell her that it's going to last forever. Tell me, have you really, ever really, really loved a woman? Because men, your wives need to be told how much you love her. They need to be told that this is going to last. I'm going to do everything I can in my power to make this thing last. They need that security. They need that trust from you. They need that love. Men, you want a, a great intimate life? Then I'm going to give you a secret. Romance her. But romance means helping her with the kids, picking up your clothes, doing the dishes, doing all those little things that you think are insignificant. But those are the things that deepen her affection for you. Don't think you can just come home, you've been gone all day at work, you're tired, you go home, you flop in front of the TV, give me the remote, give me something to drink, give me some potato chips, and you sit there all night. Your wife is taking care of the kids, feeding the kids, cleaning the kitchen, doing all that, getting the kids to bed, taking their baths, doing their homework, doing all that. You've just been sitting there, click, click. Oh, that's all you've been doing since you've been home for three, four hours, click, click. And oh, it's time for bed, and you're all excited, and she's all pooped out. Because she's been doing all the work and you expect her to be romantic and affectionate but you haven't put anything inside of her. You haven't built her. You haven't told her anything. You haven't romanced her. You haven't told her how beautiful she is. So if you want to deepen her affections for you then romance her. Because not only does great sex start outside of the bedroom, but secondly, great sex is tender and passionate. And verses 4 through 7 reads like this. You following along? It says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. Now here Solomon compares his wife to a deer. I mean, he's compared her to everything now. 
And in reading what this meant is that, you know, if you're a hunter, and, and they've always described men as hunters, when you're a hunter, how would you approach a deer? Very softly, very tenderly. You don't pounce on a deer. You don't run after a deer. You are tender with a deer. That's how you're supposed to be with your wife. The same way. Tenderness. Not rough, not insensitive, not totally oblivious to how they feel, but understanding them. Understanding what they're going through. Verse 7 says, you are altogether beautiful. Beautiful in every way. Now, I don't know about this, but I have never met a perfect woman. On, on every magazine cover, they all look perfect. But I've never met a perfect woman. And husbands, you need to know this. Your wife has insecurities about her body. Because our society has magazines that tell us if you're not a size 2 or a size 4, you're fat. And I don't know if you know what a size 2 or a size 4 is, but that's like about that big. It's not very big at all. But society tells us that we're fat. So the pressure to be thin has created anorexics and bulimics in women all around the world. Every magazine cover has been photoshopped, airbrushed, computerized to make them appear flawless. But they're not real. Those women are not real. Have you ever seen, you know, I know every so often I get on the internet all these pictures of um, movie stars without makeup. Scary. <laughs> scary. Anybody ever seen those pictures? They're scary. It's like, oh my gosh, put the makeup on. Put the computer Photoshop on. <laughs> that even though we know that they really don't look like that, even though we know that they've been Photoshopped and computerized and, and airbrushed, the self-esteem of women consistently has the power to lower our esteem. Because women have a problem. We compare ourselves to each other. That's a woman's flaw. So men, I want to remind you that you need to tell your wife that number one, that computer image is not real, and number two, you need to tell her how beautiful she is. How absolutely, stunningly beautiful she is. Matter of fact, if you're next to your wife, tell her right now. Tell her how beautiful she is. Okay. Now, women, it's your turn. What women, you need to understand today is that through sexual intimacy, this is how your husband feels emotionally committed to you. Because, see, women can really be touchy-feely with other women. I mean, we, we see other women, and, and it's nothing to give another woman a kiss on the cheek or... Or, you know, in the Philippines, they walk arm in arm or hand in hand. I mean, it's nothing to be, to be you know, sitting close to another woman if you're going to have, um, you're sitting at a restaurant, you know, but uh, men don't do that. Men don't walk hand in hand <laughs> down the aisle. 
They don't uh, greet each other with kisses. When I go to Home Depot and I walk down the lumber aisle, I do not see men walking arm in arm, asking each other, what do you think about this lumber? You think it would look good in my living room? Should I pick oak or walnut or cedar or pine? What do you think? <laughs> Guys just don't do that. They go in there and they already have an idea. This is what they want. This is what they're going to get. And they're in. And it, it's just funny. But women, you need to understand something. The only tender touch that your husband should get or will get is from you. See, women will get that from other women, and they'll even get that from their children, or they'll either get that from, from different ways, but a man will get that from his wife. He should not get that tenderness from anyone else. So when you reject his advances towards you, and you reject him, and you reject him, and you reject him, he begins to feel less like a man. Eventually, he'll stop because every time he does make an advance, you let him down. And he begins to feel less manly. He begins to feel demoralized as a man. And all because of your constant rejection. There needs to be communication between both of you. And if you've had a headache for more than two to three weeks, get to a doctor. Okay? Get to a doctor. Because you got a problem. Trust is everything that a woman wants in a marriage. But if you constantly reject your husband, you will single-handedly tear your marriage down. All by yourself. Won't be anybody else. It'll be you. So third, not only is great sex out of the bedroom, not only is great sex tender and passionate, but number three, it's also built on trust. Verse eight, follow along with me. It says, come with me from ne Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Come down from Mount Amana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. Now, these mountains of Amana, Sinir, and Hermon were in northern Israel. And everybody knew that in these mountains there were a lot of lions and there were a lot of leopards that lived there. And what Solomon was trying to tell his new bride is that you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You can trust me. I love you enough to go into that mountain range and bring you out with me. You don't have to be afraid of anything. If there are lions and tigers and bears, I'll take care of it. I got you covered. You can trust me. Because trust is the foundation of any marriage. Trust says, I will put you first before me. That's what trust says. If your wife feels that your idea of intimacy is only about you and your needs, you will not have any trust built in your marriage. That is why, listen to this, that is why when husbands and wives argue, now this was always a trip for me to understand, and the older I get, the more I understand it.
When husbands and wives argue, the husband can still want to be with his wife. He can still desire his wife because intimacy will take the argument away. It'll erase the argument. Whatever the argument was doesn't matter. Let's just be intimate and we won't argue anymore. That's how a man thinks. But a woman is the exact opposite because an argument erases physical intimacy. Don't even look at me. Don't even think you are going to touch me. So a man thinks it will erase, and a woman says it is erased. What we need to understand in our marriages is that every area of our life needs to be built with trust. How do you build trust in your marriage? By doing all the little things that you say you're going to do. Doing them. Pay the bills, put the gas in the car, throw out the trash, mow the lawn, pick up the cleaners, do all the things that you say you're going to do because when you say, oh, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that and you don't do it, it tears the trust down. If you say, I got it covered, I'll take care of it, don't worry, and you don't do it, you tear your foundation of trust down. Women want to trust their husbands with the little things. But what little things are you doing to build that trust? See, because remember, trust affects every area of marriage. Number four, great sex is sensual. And we're going to read from verses 9 through 11. And it reads like this. Solomon is talking to his bride still, and he's saying, you have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. Now here, Solomon is telling his bride how wonderful she looks. And then he closes it by saying, and you smell like a tree. Because <laughs> the cedar of Lebanon was a tree. You got to tell your wife that she smells good. You really do. How wonderful she looks. Just don't tell her she smells like a tree. Tell her she smells like, like fresh bounce out of the dryer or oatmeal cookies or, you know, any food that you like. Whatever it is that you really, really like that makes your, your mouth like sabroso, you know, like, like um, water. Whatever that is, that's what you tell them. Because I remember telling my husband one time, you know what? Mmm, you make me think of chili. Because chili to me was, you know, there were certain chilies that would make my mouth water. And I like chili. I love chili. And so I would tell him, you're like chili. And he knew what I was meaning. He was meaning that that's how much I loved him because I love chili. Now, Solomon described what it's like to kiss his wife. Now, you may not be this Romeo, but I will tell you something. You married a Juliet. 
every man marries a Juliet because she wants to be romanced. Most husbands today will buy candy and flowers or flowers for their wife. Now, I'm not saying do that or I'm not saying not to do that. But I'm going to let you know something. Any husband can do that. Even a loser husband can do that. <laughs> Hasn't been attentive to her all year, and all of a sudden, here's some flowers and candy. It's like, <laughs> husbands, do you even know your wife's favorite flower? Do you even know if she likes flowers? There's some women who don't like flowers. When she tells you what she likes, you need to remember. Because you know what? You score points when you remember. Because that means you listen. And if you listen to her, that's like ding, 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 ding. Okay, he really cares about me. Because when you were dating, you waited on her every word. You listened to her for an hour. Talk about the same thing on the phone. And now you won't even listen to her for two minutes. I still have my first Valentine gift my husband gave me. My first, first Valentine gift. Still got it. It's almost 34 years old, but it was a keeper. And it still is. Because it doesn't take that much effort to build that kind of a relationship with your spouse. It really doesn't. So, as we round the corner to the last point, not only does great sex start before the bedroom, not only is great sex tender and passionate, not only is great sex built on trust and essential, but the last thing and the most important thing is that great sex is holy. It's holy. And that's found in verse 12. And it reads like this. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain, your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna and nard, nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. The first thing that Solomon tells his wife is that you're a private garden. You're a secluded spring. You're a, a hidden fountain. What he is doing is he is describing how he feels that she has saved herself for him. You're a private garden. Nobody was allowed to go in your garden. Nobody, you were a hidden fountain. Nobody even knew. You were all secluded. You kept yourself. You saved yourself just for me. And what he was doing is he was esteeming her. He was romancing her. He was telling her how much that meant to him that she saved herself for him, that she gave him her gift of purity. They waited till their wedding night to be physically intimate. And it was something that was special and it was something that was holy. Holy means dedicated. Holy means set apart for a special purpose. Holy is a person's character. This couple separated from each other physically 
And because they did that, they were now able to come together and enjoy each other for the rest of their lives. Now, if you're not married here today, you need to make a decision. Do you want the day that you get married to be special? To be holy? Or do you want it to be business as usual? Just continue carrying on for what you did last week or yesterday or whenever. It's your decision. God's will is for you to wait till you're married. When you enjoy physical intimacy in the bonds of marriage, you will also enjoy the blessings of God. Because God created sex to be awesome. He really did. He created to be something wonderful, but within the boundaries of marriage. Now, you may be sitting here today and you may say, you know what? I already messed up. And I feel guilty. And I'm angry and I'm ashamed. And you know what? I'm even mad that you would even talk about it now. Because nobody else feels like this. The people that I work with don't feel like this. People I go to school with don't feel like this. Well, let me let you know something. The world may not feel like this, and society may not feel like this, but the kingdom of God is like this. It is like this. You need to step out of the thinking of the world. That's why I opened up with that scripture from Romans 12, where it says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. See, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're really wanting to believe all of this. You're really wanting to believe that sex is holy, that sex is pure, that there is a lot of things that you maybe not understood about it. And you really want to believe this. In fact, there's a part of you that says, this is what I want. But when you walk out of these doors, you have a hard time behaving like you believe when you're sitting in here. Because when you're sitting in here and you're all in a whole group and you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to keep myself pure. I am not going to do this and I am not going to do that. And in a church setting, you'll say amen. In a church setting, you'll say premarital sex is wrong. But will you believe that way when you're sitting alone in the dark in a car at 1 o'clock in the morning? Because then your behavior says you really don't believe it. Today is a great day to say, Lord, I want to change my beliefs to match my behavior. I don't want to be in someone's garden before it's time. I don't want to visit. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to tend to anybody's garden until it's my garden. No matter what you've done, God can forgive you. There is not anything that you have done that God will not forgive. If you've slept with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, if you've watched pornography, God will forgive you. Maybe you've gotten involved with someone other than your spouse. God will forgive you. Maybe you're a husband who stopped pursuing his wife a long time ago. You need to start dating your wife again. God will forgive you. Maybe you're a wife... And you've been rejecting your husband for a long, long time. And now the spirit of conviction has come upon you and you know you have to change. God will forgive you and give you a fresh start. 
If you're single here, you need to get into a journey group with other singles where you make a commitment to live a holy life until God brings someone your way. And if you're married, you need to get into a journey group where you can have relationships with other married couples. Because, men, let me let you in on a secret. Okay? Your wife wants you to take the lead spiritually. She wants you to take the lead. There is so much security that is developed in, within her when you pursue the things of God. When you read, when you pray, when you want to come to church, and you do it, and she doesn't have to mention anything to you. There is a trust that develops inside of her. There is something inside of her that says, I can follow him because he's following God. If you say, we're going to this journey group because I'm committed to our marriage getting better, you're going to score points and you're going to build trust. That means you got to get up and pray. you got to get up and read. you got to come to church even if she doesn't come. Sometimes there are spouses that say, oh, my, my child is sick, so we both have to stay home. Is that what you do when you have to go to work? When you go to work and your kids are sick, do you say, oh, I, I have to stay home with you because the kids are sick? No, you're like, i got to go to work. Well, it's the same thing about coming to church. You don't stay home. Alternate. You come one morning, she comes in the evening. I mean, there's things that you can work out. But when you do nothing, when you just sit there, when you just watch TV all day, you're tearing down her trust level in you. You're tearing it down little by little by little. God doesn't bless intentions. Some of you are saying, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not, you know, you have good intentions, but I'm going to let you know something. God doesn't bless intentions. He blesses actions. Don't say we might, we should, we are, and then you don't. Stop saying I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Just do it. Just do it. Because God will bless your actions, not your intentions. So what we learned today is that sex is pure. Our thinking, our actions, our beliefs can change. Some of them have to change because we've been using it as a weapon. We've been using it as a weapon against our spouse to give us power to have our way. But today, God wants to change our thinking. Bow your heads with me this morning. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's someone here who has not yet asked the Lord to come into their life, to change their heart, then you've come to a great service because today we want to offer you that opportunity to come and know him as your personal savior. Don't have a good intention. You got to give your life over to Christ. You got to live for him. It's not as difficult as you think it is. He brings joy. He brings peace. All the things that you so desperately want, he can bring it into your life. And if there's someone here this morning that you say, you know what, I've been running from God, 
but I need to give him my life today. I need to give him my everything. I'm going to stop playing with God. Would you raise your hand? I'd like to pray with you this morning. Anybody here? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? You say, I want to I wanna stop. God bless you. God bless you. For those of you who have raised your hand, I want you to repeat a prayer. In fact, I want everybody to repeat it with me. I want you to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I ask you to come into my life. Change my heart. I am a sinner, and I need your grace and your mercy. I believe that you came and you died on the cross and you rose again on the third day just for me. Today is the day of my salvation. I give my life to you. That's how simple it is. And for those of you who said that prayer for the first time, we have a table when you leave today that we want you to stop by because we have something we want to give you. But for the rest of you, married or single, the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. Maybe there's areas that you need to work on, areas you've been slipping in, things you need to change in the way you think, and the way you act. Marriage is not easy. It's hard. And without God, you're fighting a losing battle. You need him to have the glue in your marriage. And if you're here this morning, and you say, I, I need prayer in my marriage, would you raise your hand and just put it down? I'd like to pray with you. God bless you. All over this place. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And if you're single this morning and you say, you know what? I need to make some decisions. I need to change the way I think. I'm going to make a decision to stay pure until the day that God brings me someone. Until I walk down that aisle. Would you raise your hand? I'd like to pray with you. Hallelujah. All over this place. Amen. Stand with me this morning. This is Valentine's Day. It's a day where we normally celebrate the love of a loved one. But first, before we even celebrate that, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus is the glue. He's the only one that can hold a marriage together. He's the only one that can give you strength to walk that single life in purity until the day God brings someone into your life. And if you raised your hand this morning for whatever reason, you're married, I want you both to come up here. If you're single, I want you to come up. And let's just lay whatever it was at the altar before him this morning as Luis sings. Lord, this is my 
desire. 